gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? We have a great show for you tonight. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, caught uh, coming to you from Ice Station Zebra in Austin, Texas. Um, I don't know if these clarifying things are um, required, but just in case you should know, I'm doing this over hotel Wi-Fi under less than fully auspicious circumstances. Uh there is ambient noise from time to time from the hallway because the hotel is filling up with refugee families who have lost power. And um, we can also sometimes hear the elevators grinding and the heat come on. Um, also, my coin-operated dialysis machine goes chapakada chapakada when I run out of quarters, so that may come into things as well. Also, we are having some technological issues with our guest, so... I've been told I cannot interrupt or talk over her or it'll ruin parts of the audio. So that gives her free reign to uh, dominate this podcast, much like Tucker Carlson says libertarians have been dominating Washington for the last 30 years. So uh, if you haven't guessed yet or followed me on Twitter, you can probably guess who um, today's guest is. This is, I believe, her second time back on the podcast. It is Stephanie Slade from Reason Magazine, um, one of the one of my favorite uh, libertarians because she's uh, uh, my kind of libertarian in many ways. I'm sure we disagree on some things, and uh, but she also is like um, not some sort of rogue pagan that wants everyone to be a um, participate in android orgies or whatever is popular these days in some corners of libertine world. Anyway, uh, she has written um, a much discussed essay for the latest issue of Reason, which of course is primarily focused on drug legalization. We'll get into that. Uh, but uh, it's a good essay nonetheless, and people wanted to hear us talk about it. So the question is, is there a, the title is, is there a future for fusionism? And Stephanie, welcome to The Remnant. Thank you. I'm excited to be here, not least because I believe last time I was on your show, uh, you, you were a little disappointed that there was too much militant uh, agreement happening. So I'm thinking that when it comes to fusionism, we may be able to get some disagreement going. I'm wor- I, I, I will be honest. I am worried about this because um, I have evolving views on some of, of, of these things and I didn't find a lot to disagree with. But um, why don't we start by you defining what people think fusionism is, why you think they're wrong in how they define it, and then how you would define it. And I will try not to interrupt you, not just because I'm chivalrous, but because of the nature of the technological restraints. Right. Um, So I think there is a sort of conventional wisdom or well-worn tale about fusionism that that people in the conservative movement especially um, tend to return to. And it goes something like this. Uh, Fusionism was uh, an alliance that emerged during the Cold War between religious traditionalists and um, libertarians. And because both of these groups had very good reasons to be opposed to the sort of rampaging Soviet Union, which was both atheistic and anti-capitalist, they were willing to come together under one tent and uh, even on occasion cede ground to each other in order to put up a strong fight in the fight against communism. But since the fall of the Soviet Union, 
the glue that held this fusionist alliance together has gone away. And um, what we are seeing now is the total dissolution of the fusionist alliance. Um, and this is represented um, in a variety of ways, but one of, the, one of the more vivid ones is the emergence of this sort of post-liberal conservative conservatism, nationalist conservatism, common good conservatism. It sort of depends who you, who you ask how we describe this, but it's a, it's a sort of um, non-apologetic, unapologetically big government conservatism that has emerged um, and that wants absolutely nothing to do with its libertarian brethren. Um, it is happy to, you know, sing the death song of the Fusionist Alliance and send libertarians on their way um, and, and turn to a more muscular form of conservatism as opposed to the, the sort of libertarian-friendly version from the Cold War era. That is the conventional story of what fusionism is all about. And um, what I posit in my piece and argue for in my piece is that it is almost entirely wrong, that that story actually misunderstands or conflates fusionism with, there, there certainly was a, an alliance, a sort of three-legged Reaganist stool of uh, libertarians and um, Cold War hawks and religious conservatives that formed during that era. But fusionism is something else. Fusionism is the idea that both liberty and virtue matter. It is, and I, I, what I say is that this is a distinct philosophical orientation. It's not just bringing the libertarians who have one philosophy and the religious traditionalists who have another philosophy into the same camp and forcing them to, to get along. It is actually a, an orientation that says both of these things matter. Um, and, and so they may be in, in tension with each other, but we need to find a way to resolve that tension. And it, and it, it, it actually, over time, I think the fusionists, the fusionists, people like Frank Meyer and William F. Buckley, um, they, they evolved or developed a way to resolve the tension between those two, two things so that we do not have to feel like um, the, the libertarians and the social uh, religious traditionalists are constantly in a tug of war over who should get to set the policy agenda. So much to uh, the dismay of someone, I'm sure, uh, I agree with a lot of that. Um, I think that I went and reread this piece I wrote in 2018 for NR um, about fusionism. Um, and I also read Ramesh's piece, which he did for the 65th anniversary issue recently about fusionism. And I, I, I think you're right um, uh, in, the, in this sense that, that Meyer's project was about a tradition in Western civilization that goes back to the Old Testament, essentially. And, um, and M. Stanton Evans, in his book, The Theme is Freedom, made this point. That it's, it's a, it, we're talking about a cultural tradition not just a philosophical project. The problem is that the way I would argue that the way Meyer and others talked about this tradition is they turned it into a philosophical project and they turned it into <clears throat> this sort of set of maxims and axioms and, and propositions that one could argue with. And and that made it sound an awful lot like they were building an alliance. And that's how, for understandable reasons, a lot of people took it. And I don't normally say a lot of nice things about Murray Rothbard, but I think that Murray Rothbard's critiques of fusionism were pretty good. Um, and that it, as a philosophical project, it doesn't work. Um, 
in terms of as as when I see a philosophical project, I mean as an ideological construct, it doesn't work on its own terms, but as an explication of an actual tradition or a cultural thing, it's a very real thing, and it's basically Western liberalism and conservatives and libertarians, particularly of our ilk, tend not to like to talk about things as cultural ises. We like to talk about philosophical oughts. And so a lot of people got confused about this. Does that make sense? Am I just rambling? Because I am like, go, I am like, uh, getting cabin fever here in, in Austin, just so you know. So I, I, I may start rambling about how I have to eat small children to stay alive or whatever. But anyway, go on. Does that make sense? Let's, let's start by just for, for our dear listeners, ex- telling them a little bit about what Murray Rothbard's critique was, which, and which I agree with um, in large part, but I don't think that he, you know, successfully argued that, that as a philosophical project, it fails. His, his point, Rothbard said, hey, Frank Meyer, hey, William F. Buckley, your, um, your fusionist philosophy that you're articulating is one in which you say that the highest end or goal of government is to protect individual rights and liberties. And the highest end of, of your sort of, the sort of vast realm outside of government is to pursue virtue and the higher things in life. And that makes you a libertarian. That was Murray Rothbard's claim, was if you think that the highest end of government is to protect individual rights and liberties, then you are a libertarian. And so this, I, this need for this sort of fusionist alternative to libertarianism was unnecessary. Now, in a sense, I think he's right. Rothbard was right. That's the kind of libertarian I am. Um, but that's not the only way to be a libertarian. And I know that because I work at Reason Magazine. And there are a lot of people <laughs> who, identify, who identify as libertarians who um, would say that liberty is the highest end sort of across the board and would not, would not take a sort of traditionalist Judeo-Christian understanding of virtue and put it on a pedestal as sort of the highest goal of life outside, outside of government. And so that it really is useful to have some sort of terminology to describe the type of person who believes that government exists to protect individual rights and liberties, but also that virtue in the traditionalist sense is incredibly important. And that really part of the reason that we have a government that protects rights and liberties is to create the space that allows us, you know, in our individual lives, in our families, in our communities, as a country, as a world, to, to pursue bigger and better and higher things that, that have nothing to do with just, you know, live however you want to live, do whatever feels good. Um, that type of, that, that philosophy, I mean, and, and I do think that that's a, a, a philosophical orientation that's coherent. I mean, it, it helps that I sort of am that thing. So I, of course, think that it's, <laughs> um, but so, so I, 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 I would disagree that it fails as a philosophical project. I think it is, it is a useful, um, it is a useful alternative to the sort of libertine libertarianism um, and this sort of big government, you know, post post liberal conservatism that is now emerging. To say this is this is a better way to approach to to approach our our sort of right of center intellectual tradition to understand it and to explicate it and to resolve the inherent tension between wanting to value you know valuing both liberty and and virtue. Yeah, I, I guess I should be clear. I, I, I and I, I did misspeak about one thing, or I left one thing out. Uh, but first, I should be clear. I consider myself a fusionist. I don't think it's a wrong philosophical orientation per se. 
Um, in fact, I think it is the correct philosophical <laughs> orientation. Otherwise, I, I wouldn't, you know, subscribe to it. I mean, uh, one of the fascinating things about human nature is the way that um, everybody who comes up with their assigned worldview or uh, chooses a worldview then has to insist it's good. So that you, the, my favorite example of this are how Satanists say you really don't understand what Satanism is about. It's really a very positive life affirming philosophy, you know, blah, 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 blah. But um, anyway, that's the side. We'll do a show on Satanism later. Um, I'll get Nick Gillespie back on for that. Um, but uh, the, my point is, is that, I, it's in the, and the thing I left out was that I also think that uh, Bozell Sr., um, it's always important to point out the senior, because people get confused when you say Elbo, L. Brent Bozell you know, criticized Frank Meyer and they're like, oh my God, how old is that redheaded guy? And the guy you see on TV from, from Media Research Center is L. Brent Bozell's son. He's junior. Um, Bozell, whose conservatism I do not agree with, and we'll get to some of that stuff down the road. Um, uh, he nonetheless, it, it sometimes in quite mean-spirited, logic-chopping fashion, even though they loved each other, Meyer and Bozell, pointed out the internal flaws of some of, of uh, on paper, of Meyer's version of fusionism. You know, in, in, you know, Bozell pointed out that if compelled virtue is never virtuous in any way, or that state-encouraged virtue is never virtuous in any way, then, um, uh, but choosing virtue against impediments makes you more virtuous, then maybe we should make the government should make virtue as difficult as possible so as to make people more virtuous when they overcome it. Right. And he's talking about how, you know, and, and I, I think at the margins, Bozell's point that the government can do things at the margins that make it easier to live a virtuous life is wholly persuasive to me. It's just that where he draws the lines for these margins is just crazy outside the at, outside the permissible zone, as far as I'm concerned. And for people who think I'm being unfair to him, he did end up supporting Franco, right? So, like, he has a vision of what government-imposed virtue is that is different from from either of ours, or even most of even David French's, or or pick a social conservative that you you want to pick. Um, my point is is that that I agree with you that that fusionism is a useful heuristic in the sense that it lets you acknowledge the fact that there are trade-offs between competing goods. And um, the libertarians who think freedom is the ultimate and only and greatest good are nuts. The conservatives who think virtue, however they define it, is the only and greatest and single good are nuts. And I don't mean in a pejorative sense, I just mean they're just really, really wrong. And my view, which I often state on this podcast, is that I'm against monocausal or philosophical monism in all regards. You can't reduce anything down to a single thing. And one of the things that Meyer's fusionism does is it allows us to acknowledge that you can take freedom so far it impinges on other good things, or you can take the pursuit of virtue too far that it impinges on other good things, and it gives you a balancing test. So that part, I think, is useful. Does that make more sense? 
Yeah, I was I was wondering if you were going to bring up the balancing test because that was one of the things that I I looked at your piece from 2018 where you say fusionism is not a philosophy, it's a tool, it's a balancing test. And ultimately, I decided that I I think you're wrong about that. Um I think that I understand what you're saying there. I think I might be wrong about that. But go on. <laughs> here's here's my response. Um you, what you said something I'm sorry, I don't have it in front of me, but what you said is something like when you're when you're um faced with a challenge, you should ask yourself, um does this does this um, sort of, um, is this a threat to liberty and is this a threat to, threat to virtue, right? You should ask these two questions. I think that fusionism says you should ask a different two questions. You should first ask, is this a question about public policy, about government policy um, or not? And if the answer is yes, then you ask, is this a threat to virtue? Uh, sorry, is this a fresh, uh, threat to freedom? Um, and if it is not a question of government policy, if it's a question of should I run out on my family, you know, and take up with my mistress or something, really any of the questions that you have that have nothing to do with public policy, but just have to do with how we live our lives and how we form a, form a society outside of government, then you ask the question, is this, is this a threat to virtue or is this a good or bad when it comes to virtue? Uh, and and in, I also should add that I think these are somewhat capacious terms. And, and so when I say virtue, uh, I mentioned sort of in passing, this is sort of a constellation of goods that have to do with its faith and family and community and, um, you know, being a good person and, and building a good society is what is that what I think, you know, people mean when they talk about virtue in this context. Meanwhile, liberty is not just pure freedom from all constraint. It's, um, it's sort of being secure in your person and property. It's being free from, um, it's being free from aggression and coercion and fraud, you know, that sort of thing. Um, it's the it's the thing that we would say government exists to ensure and and to to provide is freedom in that way. Um, so I've kind of lost where my train of thought. Um, <laughs> so you, no, no, I I I have no major problem with your clarification of the different question of the different questions that you should ask. Right, the balancing test. I'm in favor of asking just lots of questions. Um, and I probably narrowed it down to too few uh, for uh, the piece I did on fusionism. I mean, look, so I think we talked about this the last time you were on. I, I really was, it was really clarifying of, of it helped me, uh, this is a weird way of saying this given how tongue-tied I am. It helped me articulate something that I've been stumbling at for years when I read this piece by um, Daniel Burns for National Affairs on liberal practices versus liberal theory. And, you know, the, the, and we'll put it in the show notes. And the, the larger point that he makes is that virtually all liberal theory has no analog in a, an actual healthy living society um, in the sense that the way people live is weirder than the list of propositions and, 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 and principles that we put down on paper for any philosophical thing. People do not consult immediately their philosophical propositions when they make decisions in their lives. They factor in all sorts of things. And so as much as the, the new nationalists or the post-liberal conservatives, you know, denigrate Locke and they think that we've been destroyed by Locke and Lockeanism and Locke, Locke is, you know, you know, just storming through downtown Tokyo, destroying everything. Um, there are no purely Lockean societies anywhere in the wet, in the liberal, in, in the liberal West. There are places where Lockean principles inform things, but we don't have pure majoritarianism. There's nothing in Locke that would like support 
federalism or the electoral college or any of these kinds of things. And, um, and so the fusionism stuff that I like is, is, um, is the, re is the recognition of, of the trade-offs. And if people want to ask different questions about what those trade-offs might be, that's fine with me. But the, the, the reason why I think fusionism fails as pure philosophy is because almost all philosophy fails as pure philosophy. When you actually try to apply it to real life, people live in quirkier, weirder, um, more adaptive ways than, you know, the dictates of, of philosophical treatment. You know, you, I, you could, it's difficult to walk down the street reading your philosophy and actually preventing from tripping over a fire hydrant. And I think similarly, it is difficult to organize a society based upon philosophy, purely philosophy, when, you know, uh, I mean, look, what percentage of Americans don't even know what the three branches of government are? The idea that they are following around purely on a, some sort of philosophical thing is wrong. The, 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 M. Stanton Evans and um, Meyer emphasis on the culture and the tradition stuff to me is much more heartening and much more persuasive than trying to lay down the actual precepts of a philosophical program because I just don't think they, they work that well on paper and they're not really translatable through government policy into um, social organization. Well, you're not wrong about how people actually live and whether people, you know, are, are, are consulting their philosophical priors every time they make a decision. And I mean, I'm not arguing that, but I think that we're living through a moment that really sheds, it highlights the importance of not undervaluing, um, having a, having a sort of clear philosophical foundation. I mean, when you, <laughs> it's, it's very trendy, including among conservatives to, to sort of, um, be dismissive of ideology, and I'm not an ideologue. Well, I find that most people, you know, libertarianism is is an ideology. I work for an ideological magazine. I don't think that ideo ideology is necessarily bad. And most of the time, when people um, criticize ideology, what they seem to actually mean, what they seem to actually be doing, is criticizing people who have principles and stay true to them. Um, so, so you know, so to, to come back to, um, for example, the the Bozell critique, which the elder Bozell, who I agree was both crazy and brilliant, and his his response to Meyer about fusion when he when he argues that fusionism is, is incoherent, is an incredibly I mean it's, a, it's an incredible read. Everybody should read it if they're interested in these topics. Um, but one of the things he says is, and as you as you pointed out, is that well, government can have um, a role in forming people in um, you know for, in, in forming people and helping them to make making making virtue more easier, right? Um, and although that's true, it's certainly true that the law, every law has some effect on how people behave and, and whether they behave virtuously or not. Um, I, very often the law, I think very, very often the laws that are passed with good intentions have the opposite of the effect that we want them to. So the example I, I sort of quickly run through just to illustrate this point in my article is, um, you know, how well has welfare policy over the last century um, really gone? How well has it accomplished the things that we wanted it to? And and specifically when it comes to how well has it helped to train people to be able to lift themselves up as opposed to making them be dependent and um, and sort of lose the, the, the moral skills, the, mor the, the skills and the moral skills 
um, to, to be able to live, um, you know, to be able to live fruitful lives. So I think you, you run the risk if you start passing laws that are that with, with the explicit goal of trying to make people more virtuous or make virtue easier for people, um, of actually making it so that nobody ever has to flex their moral muscles to think about why one decision is better than another. You know, you actually could make it much harder to be a virtuous person, not intentionally, but as a side effect of trying to pass too many laws that dictate to people how to live. On the other hand, if you focus on passing laws with the express intention of protecting individual rights and liberties, not trying to make somebody virtuous, but protecting rights and liberties and saying that's the point of government and that's we're going we're gonna to keep government in its box, doing the thing that it does well and that is appropriate for it to do, you will, of course, obviously touch upon moral and virtuous activities. But we don't ban murder because being a murderer is, is, is unvirtuous. We ban murder because murder is a violation of foundational rights. We don't force, you know, we don't enforce uh, contracts and force people to pay their debts because walking, you know, booking somebody is immoral. We do it because the person who would be victimized has a right. And so when you focus on rights and liberties, you obviously create a, a, an environment in which being moral is easier in many ways. Also, you, you get that as a side effect. But once you once you flip the switch and say it's okay to pass laws with the intention of teaching people to be moral, well, now we have to ask questions about who's deciding what is moral. How much power is necessary to enforce that? You know, what happens if, as is very often the case with public policy, the results, you know, there are unintended consequences and the results are different from what you intended. These questions become very, very relevant when you start talking about actually legislating morality or virtue as opposed to you know, government exists to protect rights and liberties. Look, I, I, if there's a sign-up sheet somewhere, uh, put me on it for people who want government to stay primarily focused on protecting uh, rights and liberties, um, including contract rights and property rights and all of that. I, I, and I think you're right. There's a very Adam Smithian point here about how if you set up the system to respect individual liberties and whatnot, you will get a lot of... Um, beneficial thrown off virtue creation in the process. Um, there is a chicken or the egg thing here, you know, the process and work ethic comes before the benefits to capitalism. I mean, you can go, you can argue it both ways, but I think, I think you're right. I do think though, again, cause I, I want to move on to some other stuff here, but, uh, you know, if, if my recollection is right and you've read Meyer more recently than I have, um, but he conceived of the constitution as being this sort of grand fusionist project, right? That it was part of the, the, it was a, it was a fusionist document in a sense, because it protected rights and liberties, as you put it, um, which would therefore allow virtue to prosper. And I think that is largely correct. I mean, we'll put the slavery stuff to one side, right? We'll put all of that, all the, all the obvious left-wing critiques of the constitution aside doesn't mean they're wrong. It just means they're boring at this point. Um, the fact is, is that the Constitution still allowed for really robust non-fusionist state governments. And you had lots of state governments, and forget state governments, you had lots of local governments that were, um, you know, anti-libertarian hellscapes from, from the perspective of, of, of some libertarians. You know, the, they had blasphemy laws, they had all sorts of laws regulating, you know, uh, sexual behavior in various ways. Um, they had all sorts of prohibitions on alcohol and all these kinds of things. Um, you'd have to take them on a case-by-case -case basis to see which one I could live with and which one I couldn't. But part of my understanding of, of the, the 
sort of the liberal fusionist tradition rather than the liberal fusionist philosophical program is to allow a lot of that stuff because people are going to live differently in different places and you should let them so long as really basic fundamental liberties are not encroached upon. Um, but I've never seen anything in Meyer that really takes into account some of that stuff. Um, am I wrong about that? I think it's definitely possible and we should, you know, as fusionists, we should try to avoid the trap of falling into the trap of um, overstating the case. The, the American founding was fusionist in the sense that the founders insisted that both liberty and virtue were important and that we needed to build a society. You know, a good society was one that, that um, prioritized both those things. I think, though, that, um, that in the, you know, I'm Catholic, and in, in the Catholic Church, we have this idea of um, the development of doctrine over time. So it's not that we're getting new revelation. The church is not just discovering new moral truths you know, tomorrow, but, but we're unpacking and unfolding through, through, you know, human labor, intellectual labor. And through, over the course of the centuries, we are, we are developing the doctrine and we're coming to, to clarify and crystallize the things that we believe. I think that you can kind of apply that same idea to the idea of fusionism that, that in the past, there was a sort of vague sense that these two things are important and also that they were in tension with each other. And so how do you resolve that tension? Well, the sort of 20th century modern fusionist project, I think, develops, evolves an answer, which is to think in terms of these two separate spheres and keeping, keeping virtue and, and liberty in their proper place allows them to suddenly not be pulling, pulling against each other in this um, very antagonistic way and instead to sort of live harmoniously. Government exists to do one thing, which then creates the space for us to do the other thing out in, you know, in the, and again, the much vaster and wider and more important realm outside of government. Okay. So I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on metaphysics because you being younger and less uh, cognitively uh, impaired by bad habits than I am, probably remember more of your college philosophy than I do. But um, I get... And, 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 and I don't mean to single you out because I think you did a very mild version of this. Um, but I don't get what's bad about having ideas in tension with each other or values in tension with each other. There is this, I think, this natural human tendency to want to have uh, unity in all things and have, and I understand why in the Catholic Church and in, in Catholic doctrine, uh, if you're ascribing things to God's will, that therefore there should be a consistency in everything because it all stems from God and God's, you know, plan and all of that. But, um, it, it just seems to me as a, whether you want to do it as a, a sort of, uh, life hack sort of hallmark card, sort of life advice kind of thing, or as a serious philosophical argument, um, it's better to live a life where um, you have things in tension, where you have ideas in tension, where you have uh, different forms of identity depending on the context of where you are. Um, it is a central tension in my life, um, and I think in most married people's lives, about trying to figure out the balance between family life and work life. And I wouldn't want necessarily to live a life where there was no such tension. Um, you have to, and, and, and you, the tension is really, I mean, I, I, again, I hate to be hokey about this. 
you know, the journey is more important than the destination kind of thing. If I won Powerball tomorrow and had a billion dollars, I would no longer have this, the same, at least, work family tension. I'm not sure that would make me happier or better or more virtuous or any of these kinds of things. And one of the great things about culture is it figures out sort of like water seeking its own level, how to have things that taken in isolation in a mental philosophical lab seem to be at odds with each other and balancing them out. And there is a serious tension between freedom and virtue, which is one of the reasons why I like conservatism and sort of a right of center libertarianism, whatever you want to call it, because historically we recognize these tensions and we debate them. And sometimes the people on the side of virtue win, and sometimes the people on the side of, of freedom win, because it depends on the context and, and, and the situation. And, um, but this idea to have a philosophical worldview where there are no internal tensions or contradictions between the different things you believe, I think is a really bad idea. Um, and it leads to the sort of purity group think kind of stuff that I think bothers both of us about the, some of the more extreme versions of our basic ideological colleagues out there. Meyer, Frank Meyer believed that virtue and liberty were intention. And then actually, um, Don Devine over at the Fund for American Studies has a new book out about fusionism that's called The Enduring Tension. So, and from just like a sort of purely logical perspective, um, if I'm trying to live a virtuous life, then I am putting constraint, I'm, I'm let, allowing virtue to behave as a constraint on my behaviors, on my, on my like freedom to choose whatever I want to choose, right? I'm choosing constraints, which is not being purely free in the, again, in this sort of pure logical sense. Um, but then, but then that, that's what becomes co incoherent. Um, now you, you can't really resolve these things if you say that any, any constraints, even freely chosen and not, co you know, not, um, imposed upon you through coercion, um, counts as not being free. And, um, you know, then you, you can't, there's really, it's really very difficult to answer any questions. This is why I did, I didn't really like the idea of fusionism as a balancing test, because if at any time you're, every time you approach a public policy question, you are trying to decide, you know, okay, what does this, what does, how, what is the effect of this policy on virtue? What is the effect of this policy on liberty? It, then fusionism doesn't give us any kind of guidance on how to, how to weigh those against each other. I mean, how much liberty is, is worth trading away for an, you know, one unit increase in virtue. It doesn't, it doesn't tell us anything about what is more important in, an, in a given situation. And as a result of that, you end up with what I have sort of somewhat tongue in cheekily described as this will to power, will to power conservatism, this idea that all that matters is power and getting control of the government so that we can impose what we want, which is to say the religious, traditional, the social conservative side of all of this on America, whether they like it or not. But if we have the power, then we have the right to do it because there's no objective way to say, hey, you guys have crossed some sort of line or you, you guys are doing something that is, in, um, that is incompatible with or um, is a violation of our shared underlying you know, philosophical, philosophical commitments. Because all there is is power at that point. If, if, it's, if it's all just a game of tug of war between the libertarians and the, the, the religious traditionalists, then whoever happens to have the 50% the, you know, plus one um, in the coalition or in the country at a given time gets to make policy and nobody can say anything about it. And that makes me nervous. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you about the nervousness and I agree with you about the conservative will to power stuff, but I think you're just wrong. You know, we're trying to emphasize places where we actually disagree um, about why you're rejecting the balancing test. You say, and I'm paraphrasing, um, 
you know, if, if you, if you just ask these questions, then it just becomes uh, a, a question of coalitional politics and whoever has the upper hand and, and all the rest. I just disagree with that entirely. The benefit of asking these questions as a balancing test kind of thing is that at least the question gets asked. What you're complaining about is the kind of conservatives who no longer want to ask the question. They no longer want to ask the question, does this protect liberty? Because they don't give a damn about liberty anymore. Um, I've been arguing for 25 years. I don't remember when I first wrote it, but I write it every now and then, that every, every decision maker in the government, every, every committee sitting around a table, there needs to be at least one libertarian in the room. Because the libertarian will always ask, should we be doing anything about this at all? And that is a really important question to get asked. And if it doesn't get asked, then the group thing takes over and they just assume, they just take it as a given. There's a problem out there, therefore the government needs to be the solution to it. And the libertarian can always be counted on to ask, well, wait a second, should we be doing this at all? And then you force people to think through, holy crap, maybe you know we're not the solution to this problem. And so I personally think, you know, there are plenty of instances where freedom is going to have to lose in this balancing test. And, you know, we're, we're in the middle of we're starting year two of this pandemic. And as a sort of you know, classical liberal type, you know, I've always said that, you know, there are the government is only the federal government is only there to do a handful of things. And other than that, it should just stay out of people's way. Well, one of those things is like fighting pandemics and saving lives, you know, during a pandemic. And the response from a lot of pro you know, ostensibly famously pro-life conservatives who have shown real disdain or, uh, or scorn for the idea of trying to protect vulnerable old people and others from this pandemic is very depressing to me. But regardless, like that's a situation where if you're planning, if you're trying to figure out what's the right thing to do and someone says, whoa, 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 whoa does this impinge on freedom? I'm glad the question gets asked. I'm also glad if the answer, if it's necessary, the answer is, yeah, but this is more important. And so I, I think that the thing you're concerned about is very real, but asking these questions isn't the thing that creates those problems. It's one of the things that mitigates against it. Ask yourself, I mean, I, I agree with you that that on the short list of things that I as a libertarian believe government exists to be involved in um, responding to a pandemic, you know, a, a true public health emergency is on that list. Um, but ask yourself how well the government has done at that thing. Uh, first of all, it's been wildly incompetent. And one of the great, one of the great um, side effects, uh, underappreciated, I think, side effects of beginning any discussion of public policy from the assumption that if it's not, if it's not protecting individual rights and liberties, if it's not focus on that narrow task um, that it's not government's job to do is it forces us to think, okay, well then how else can we solve this problem? Again, the much vaster sphere outside of government is underappreciated as, uh, as this sort of wealth of opportunities to address problems outside of government power. And I think in this pandemic that we are living through, which I acknowledge there is a role for government in, we still could have left a lot of what the federal government and, and government at all level is, has been trying to do to other people and they could have done it better. Right. If there were less government at the beginning from from the beginning, I think there are many, many, many things that could have actually been done better. You know, I'm thinking all the way back to the not 
FDA not approving the early COVID tests, right? That allowed that allowed this this um, virus to begin to spread unnoticed for for weeks or even months. Um, all the way up to the fact that this, you know, the vaccine, the one, at least one of the vaccines that we are that we are now, thank goodness, um, administering to people could have been available like nine months earlier, you know, if not for uh, government involvement. And and another piece of this is I have watched with fascination as the debate over over what I would have thought was justifiable under even from a libertarian again from libertarian first principles as humanitarian aid to people who were forced out of work due to the shuttering of the economy. So I can see the case, even as a libertarian, for giving people money to help them pay their rent and buy their groceries when you have, take, when you have basically made it illegal for them to work, right? Um, but how very, very quickly, I mean, instantaneously almost, that, that debate over how do we help people who really, really need it has morphed into um, stimulus spending. We need to jumpstart the economy. Like that is, there's just really, but there was no way to stop it. Once you sort of start barreling down that hill and you don't have the sort of guardrails of a, of a, of a philosophy of a sort of philosophical, um, uh, yeah, framework that you're operating from, there's, it's really hard to, to stop the truck from barely, you know, from, from running way past the, the narrow set of things that is the proper the proper scope of government and doing anything that anybody thinks is a good idea or politically popular in any given moment. And when was the last time that spending, you know, giving people money wasn't politically popular? Yeah, I, I agree with all that. I think you're breaking my point, which is that it would have been better off if there were people in the Biden or Trump administration who asked these basic questions of should the government be doing this at all? What does this do about freedom? I mean, these are prudential things, right? And my point isn't that government doesn't screw up. That's, I mean, that's, that's part of my philosophical point of view. Um, but it will mess stuff up less if it's got people in government who understand the limits of government. And so having a sort of a, a fusionist style skepticism about um, the ability of government to solve all problems, about the unintended consequences of even the most nobly intended things, um, that would all be good. And that's why I think those questions should be asked. But I, I think we part of the problem, look, I, I'm a big believer in dogma. I, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've written, you know, in praise of dogma. I'm very much with Chesterton on dogma. Um, I, want, I want certain questions to be closed questions. Um, I don't think we need another national debate on slavery, right? That's just like, move on. You know, dogma comes from the Greek, meaning seems good, that which you take for granted. We've settled this issue. And this is one of the things I have a disagreement with Charlie Cook about, who's another classical liberal, is that he thinks it's, it's healthy for a society to constantly be debating things. I, no, it's not. I, this is where I'm a little Bozellian on this, but I'm a Bozellian on the side of liberty. I think that there are some questions that I just want society to say, why would anybody want to debate this proposition again? Like, I, I, I want it to be a closed question about pedophilia. It's just wrong. Don't do it. Taboos are good. Dogma against that kind of thing is good. Um, and I, we, I'm sure we could come up with a whole long list of things that we both agree should just be settled issues in society and not open to debate anymore. So that's the importance of dogma and sort of, which is part of how you're using philosophical framework, which I agree with entirely. I'm also a big defender of ideology. I think ideology is hugely important. If you don't have some sort of theoretical framework about how you see society, you're left with what William James called a, a bloom and buzz and confusion where everything is just static and there's no signal. 
And so for me, an ideological, uh, what an ideology properly understood is it's a, it's a, it's a checklist of priorities that you ask these various balancing test questions about. Um, does it expand freedom? Does it expand virtue? These are the things I think are important. Does it preserve democracy? Does it preserve capitalism? And um, and loaded into those questions is the assumption that those things are really important and you don't want those things to be damaged. You want them to be protected. But at the same time, since other principles can impinge on other principles, you, ha- you have to have these discussions to figure out where the, where the lines are. And in a pandemic, you draw the line one place. In, um, with the cold and flu season, you draw it another place. You have to sort of figure out where these lines are. These are prudential questions informed by an ideological point of view. Does that, am I, does that make more sense about where I'm coming from on this? Yeah, sure. And as expected, we're not probably that far apart. No, exactly. All right, so, I, 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 so here's one, and this is more of a, um, more of a story than, than a question thing. But I, I do want to push back slightly on this idea. You say in the subtitle of your piece, um, um, oh no, it wasn't in that. It was in one of your, I guess, one of your tweets about how it was sort of a myth that this was a, a, a an alliance based on the Cold War. And um, again, I think we've covered the philosophical th- stuff. I think you're right. Fusionism was a much bigger thing than this sort of permission structure to get different factions to join a coalition thing. But it was also that. And, um, and I think both of us, because we're nerds, we can do the, the actually, you don't understand that it was a philosophy thing and have a lot of fun with that. But it also was this coalition thing. And, and this is one of my favorite think tank stories. Um, in the early 90s, I was a little policy gnome at the American Enterprise Institute, um, you know, Xeroxing big thoughts. And um, I, uh, we used to have these wonderful things called the brown bag lunches where different scholars would come in and talk about something that they were working on or something that they had written or whatever. And Josh Moravchik, who was then at AEI and a really great guy, um, who was among the foremost champions of, of the most idealistic version of foreign policy neoconservatism. And um, uh, he gave a brown bag talk about neoconservatism, which bothered me because he defined it almost inter- entirely in terms of foreign policy. And so during the Q&A thing, young, skinny, I know it's hard to imagine, Jonah Goldberg asked a question and I said, um, I asked him to sort of define neoconservatism. And he gave a common, but I would argue wrong answer about how what neoconservatism is is uh, basically this foreign policy view fighting for a democracy and blah, blah, blah. And then he told this little story about how when Reagan was coming up, the anti-communists, the foreign policy anti-communists, um, recognized that they needed to form a larger coalition. So they formed this sort of intellectual partnership with social conservatives and economic conservatives for the three legs of the Reaganite stool, blah, 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 blah. Familiar story, basically the story that you're referring to. And then Michael Novak, the sainted Michael Novak, foremost champion of sort of uh, pro-capitalist Catholic theology of the 20th century, um, he gets up and says, Josh, you've got this completely wrong. 
when Reagan was coming up, we social conservatives, we pro-life conservatives recognized that we needed a broader coalition. So we invited in you foreign policy types and you and the the economic types to be part of our movement. And then Erwin Steltzer, famous uh, free market supply side Reaganite economist, says, I don't know what you guys are talking about. Reagan was explicitly an economic conservative. This was his primary agenda. We recognized that we needed to expand our coalition by inviting in you anti-communist guys and you um, social conservatives, but you guys were the the sort of, um, you were the add-ons to our fundamental thing. They all believed what they were saying. And um, these were people who were not in the bread and butter of like party building. This was, these are all of them, serious intellectuals who were trying to mount an intellectual project. And I don't even think the word fusionism came up, but that's what they were describing the way people talk about it. And I am partly, I'm nostalgic for this because I was the one who asked the question. They got all these guys to fight with each other, which was awesome. Um, but partly I'm nostalgic because that's, that's the sort of Reaganite conservatism fusionism that I still believe in. Um, where you can have people arguing about which leg of the stool is more important. And that's sort of a balancing test depending upon the situation. Um, but I can tell you that, that that sort of thinking was real and existed and, um, and was very powerful. And that's one of the reasons why people we both disagree with at, you know, American Compass and Sorab and all those guys want to get rid of it because that's the old consensus that existed and that fusionism project was a big part of it, even when they didn't even use the term. And that I, that I think has come apart. Anyway, thoughts on all that. Yeah, yeah. Well, what you're describing was, of course, a real phenomenon. Although, I mean, dating it to Reagan is really doing a disservice to William F. Buckley, because I know that I don't need to tell you this, but Buckley, like, like when he was launching National Review, he went out and intentionally uh, uh, sort of um, recruited people to, to sort of hit each of these three legs in order to make sure that his, his new conservative magazine would be truly um, representative of what he thought, you know, were the, were the important camps here. Um, so he went to Whitaker Chambers and he went to Russell Kirk and, you know, so any, anyway, um, that's a real phenomenon. William Buff Buckley was an incredibly talented co- uh, coalition builder. There was that coalition. It did help to get Reagan elected. All those things are true. Um, none of that is fusionism is sort of my argument. And they're, 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 they're too often being conflated now um, in, in memory, you know, as we get farther away from that era so that we have forgotten what, you know, what I wanted to sort of resurrect here, which was, hey, actually fusionism was this idea of a separate philosophy, um, a distinct philosophy. Another thing I'll say, though, when it comes to building alliances, and um, which is, of course, in politics, what politics is all about, um, I think thinking in terms of fusionism, as I've laid it out here, can be helpful also in that it helps to clarify. Um, so so I, I come from, before I wrote this article, I sat down with my boss, the editor-in-chief of Reason Magazine, Catherine Mengi Ward, who is um, an atheist and an anarchist and not the kind of, same kind of libertarian that I am. And I said, Catherine, here's the argument that I would like to make in this article and publish in Re- Reason Magazine. And in so doing, I will be reading you out of fusionism. How do you feel about this idea? <laughs> and she said, I love it. You have convinced me. I'm not a fusionist. You know, and so she said, write it. We'll publish it. Um, but the, re- you know, the reason that that was a conversation we could have, we have a good relationship, we respect each other, um, is, that, is that we're both clear on where we overlap and where we don't. 
she agrees with me when it comes to government policy. The, the questions that, have, that take place in that government sphere, we both believe that protecting individual rights and liberties is what the state exists to do. Um, where we don't necessarily agree is what is a good society, what is a good life, what does it mean to be virtuous, what does it mean to be moral. Um, but we don't have to just, we don't we don't have to have the same views on that in order to to um, be allies when it comes to public policy. Similarly, when I go to church or you know when I when I am hanging out with my Catholic friends and we are talking about you know being a better Christian and and um, you know the ways in which. I don't have children, but the ways in which they want to raise their children, the ways in which we, you know, the world that we want to, we want our kids to, to, you know, to grow up in. Um, and we're talking about, um, the, the values that we want to instill and, and, um, and hold each other accountable to sort of live out over time. We're not talking about public policy and they, in many cases, do not agree with my politics. They're not libertarians and that's okay too. Um, and so as we're, if we're talking, if you're having a conversation as a fusionist with somebody who is part of um, the sort of religious traditionalist but not libertarian camp, um, you can steer the conversation to what are the ways that we in our private lives and then through through voluntary you know community groups can make this world the world that we both want to live in. Um, and if you're talking to a libertarian, you can steer the conversation to what are the ways that we can collaborate to um, you know make make government policy better. It, but it's clarifying to have this sort of framework that helps us understand who are who is sort of one of us and who isn't and where then can we build bridges. I agree with that entirely. I mean, I, I, it's important to have, I mean, the essence of serious thinking is making distinctions. And, um, you know, too much, I mean, this is the sort of big theme of my underrated second book is that, you know, too often we just let these sort of simple heuristics or ideological propositions substitute for um, thinking things through in a in a serious way, in a prudential way, in a, in a you know being aware of your own philosophical biases, um, taking them into account. I know, and when I say philosophical bias, I think philosophical bias is a good thing. You just it's really important to be aware of it. Um, and my big problem with most of progressivism is that they don't think they have a philosophical bias. Um, they just think that they are, um, interested in optimal outcomes and pragmatism and all of these kinds of things, which is a, a great way to get on slippery slopes. And, um, and so I'm totally with you about the importance of, of figuring out where people can get along, where, where they can work together, where they can't how far you can go on all these things, where to draw these lines. Um, and, and I'm, and I, I highly recommend that people actually read the piece that, that you wrote, because I also entirely agree with you that the, the, the real problem with where a lot of these new post liberal conservatives are coming from is that they're actually, I mean, where we agree is that fusionism is in part a, we agree that it's also, that it's a cultural thing, right? That it is a tradition. It is a cultural, it is, but you emphasize more of its philosophical stuff than I do. But I agree with you that there's a philosophical component to it that is coherent, that there is a thing, a philosophy inside of fusionism that is distinct. And it's not just simply coalitional politics. Um, the problem with the, the, the post-liberal guys is that they're also kind of post-American, right? They're post Western culture, because if, if you define conservatism, if you define fusionism as essentially this, this 
time-honored Western tradition of valuing individual liberty that crosses ideological and partisan lines and is deeply is deeply embedded in our cultural traditions and our no, and our religious notions and all of these things, and then to say um, that the post-liberal conservatives want to reject all of that and basically use government to do good where it can, when it can, whenever it can. What we're really seeing is a form of right-wing progressivism rather than anything that has serious connections with the Burkean, de Tocquevillian tradition of the founders of Adam Smith or any of that kind of stuff. It is a new will to power conservatism, as you put it, which I agree with entirely. Yeah, I wanted to focus on the... I suppose my, there's a question in there somewhere. I was, I was sort of focusing on my view that this is a distinct philosophical tradition, in part because I thought that was the one thing that you, de you definitely were going were, were gonna to disagree with me on based on what you had written previously. But yes, a, a major theme in my article is that it is a, incredibly ironic, supremely ironic, that the folks who in this equation are the, are the quote-unquote traditionalists, the people who believe that tradition matters and that tradition is more important than liberty and that you libertarians have, have lost sight of what, you know, the importance of tradition, are today abandoning, um, with, with no second thought, the intellectual inheritance of the American political right. Now, this is not a thing that I'm sure we have to rehearse on your podcast. Conservatism in America means something very different than it meant throughout history and, and in other parts of the world. Um, I'm a big believer in the sort of, uh, I think it was H.G. Wells who said in America, they're all liberals. Even the conservatives are liberals because, because, um, because we were founded on you know, these principles about individual liberty. And it is so, so um, woven into our culture that even the conservatives are trying to conserve something, you know, something revolutionary, quite literally. Um, yeah, no, look, I, mean, I think this is a really important point, and I'm glad that you made it in part because traditional conservatism needs defenders in the world of libertarianism. And um, if there are a lot of libertarians, including, you know, one of my closest and oldest friends who works with you, Ron Bailey, um, he always wants to, like, claim that conservatives are just authoritarians and all these kinds of things. And um, particularly when he wants to make me mad. And I say things about libertarians when I want to make him mad. I mean, we're very good old friends. But um, uh, there are a lot of people who are less charitable among libertarians who have long had deep suspicions that conservatism really is just racist, sexist, authoritarianism gussied up in defense of capitalism and all these kinds of things. And um, I'm not saying that the post-liberal guys are racist or necessarily sexist. I'm just saying that they're among a lot of libertarians. They've, they're looking for reasons to think the worst about traditional conservatism. And it's worth, it's important to point out that, a lot of the stuff that, that is coming down the pike now is a break with traditional conservatism, not the apotheosis, not the fulfillment of, not, not the sort of conservatism without blinders thing that you hear every day on Twitter. This is, I mean, there's a reason why I'm angry about what's happening to the Republican Party and conservatism, and it's not because I've changed. It's because things are changing in front of my eyes. Agreed. Alas. Um, Alas, alack, um, forsooth. Um, so uh, the time we got left here, let's just for a second um, talk about how libertarianism is changing. Because as you acknowledge in the piece, I think it is. Um, it's worth reminding to listeners that in the era where this fusionism stuff was first unfolding, 
you know, in the, in the 60s and early 70s. It wasn't called libertarianism that Frank Meyer was talking about. I mean, this is one of these other things that we've sort of retroactively imposed on it, partly because of Rothbard and others. The, the libertarianism that Buckley brought into um, the National Review orbit was, jet, was usually called individualism back then, um, which is an important thing to keep in mind because it feeds into this point that both of us are making about how individualism really is part of Western culture, importantly. Um, and I, I personally think libertarians would be much better off today uh, if they had never embraced the term libertarian and hung on to, for dear life, fra- the phrase either liberalism, which would be much better, um, or individualism. Uh, because even Friedrich Hayek conceded that libertarianism was among the least euphonious words um, in political discourse. Um, but today, libertarianism you hear from as you know there are a lot of libertarians who think they need to now find common cause with the left to create a new kind of fusionism um why don't you sort of walk us through why other than the fact that that's misunderstanding what fusionism is why don't you walk us through why you think that's mistaken well, let me start by saying that uh, I think most libertarians m- many libertarians really wish that we hadn't lost the word liberal as well um i I have always, I, ha- I have long believed that that ship sailed and you know, there's nothing that could be done about it, which is kind of what Hayek was saying. Libertarian is an ugly word, but in this country, liberal just connotes something so totally different that trying to, trying to reclaim it in America would create way too much confusion. In this moment that we're in right now with the post-liberal right, you know, ascendant, um, I actually am, I, I'm very curious to see whether this is a moment when the word liberal will actually, and, and I'm going to write something about this. I, I'm, I'm in the early stages of thinking through a piece I would like to write about how, because one of the things that I think is worth remembering is that the, the great liberalism schism, as I have, as I have deemed it, it runs across the, both the left and the right. So on the right, you have the fusionists on one side and the post-liberals on the other. But on the left, you have old school liberals who actually continue to hold, you know, hold fast to the sort of liberal, you know, liberal in the sense of um, individual liberty, civil, you know, civil liberties, free speech, religious freedom, all of that sort of the, the old school ACLU model. And on the other side of that divide, you have the socialists for whom liberal is a dirty word, right? They do not consider themselves to be liberals. So, so this is a schism that runs across, uh, runs across both sides. And so I wonder if this is a moment when actually I think this is probably too optimistic, but maybe, maybe we can convince people to rethink about what the word liberal means and not just consider it to be a synonym for leftist, or, you know, left. So I always, I always try to think in terms of progressive, um, meaning, meaning left and liberal meaning on the correct side of the liberalism schism, you know, and you can be left or right and be on the correct side of that schism as far as I'm concerned. Um, okay, that was not an answer to your question, which is about why do some libertarians want to build bridges to the left? The main, the main reason for that is that they, they see opportunity to do so when it comes to a bunch of issues, and for many years, when it comes to a bunch of issues that libertarians care about, I'm thinking criminal justice reform issues and things like that. We've always felt like, why is it so, so impossible for us to have allies on the left the way we have allies on the right? Why, why, and the, and the answer has long been because the left wants nothing to do with us because as far as they're concerned our economics are immoral and they don't want to be in a coalition with people who have economics that they consider to be abhorrent and immoral um so i'm not that i'm not that optimistic when i when i said that some libertarians think now's the moment to build bridges to the left i think what they're reacting to is just the trumpian gop 
is so far, they, there's no longer any overlap between that and what we stand for. The post-liberal right and libertarianism, you know, has a, even, you know, regardless of what kind of libertarian you are, there's just, even the one area where there was overlap that we could work together on public policy, you no longer can in this environment. And so you have to look somewhere else. So we should look to the left. But I don't think, I don't necessarily feel optimistic that the left is going to want to work with us, except, except in the sense that because the schism runs on the left as well, there are people who are starting to become aware on the left. And, and you're seeing these people in droves leave major newspapers and magazines and go strike out on their own as writers on Substack, for example, because they realize I'm liberal and the institution that I used to work for that in the past we described as liberal, liberal and meant left of center is actually in, uh, part of the illiberal left. And I don't, I don't identify as that anymore. And so they're looking for a new home. Um, I, I don't know how optimistic to be about whether the, the people who are on the right, you know, the right liberals and the left liberals will be able to work together on things. But that's the sort of, that's what, that's, I think that's the, minds, the mindset that people are wondering about. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I, I wrote something about this not too long ago. You know, there's a weird new notion of the center now, which holds that you can have conversations. Like if you if you can have a conversation with someone who disagrees with you, that kind of makes you a centrist now <laughs> because um, the 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 pull of idiot for ideological uh, conformity imposition on both sides is so strong that if you dissent from that, even if you have very strong views about economics and whatnot, that kind of makes you, you know, a classical liberal today is, is essentially a centrist if they can, because the, the antipodes, the, the poles of the two ideological spectrums are being redefined in weird psychological ways. And I, and I think there is something to that. I do think though that you, I think you're a little off in, um, your explanation of why left liberals or the le why progressives and left libertarians or progressives and libertarians can't find common cause. You said it's because basically they think our economics are evil. They definitely think that I think, you know, for sure. But I, I think the, the, the more primary explanation for it has to do with the kind of progressives you're talking about and their relationship to power, particularly state power. And they basically believe that they're, they're sort of the virtue crats that you're complaining about on the right in the sense that they believe that state can impose its will based upon our conception of what is right. And that any, any obstacles to that are illegitimate, corrupt, or evil. And that explains the economics part of it, but it also explains a lot of the other social engineering things. I don't think there's this notion that progressives care primarily about economics. And um, I think it's a vestige of old Marxist and class-based arguments. And it's just not true anymore. The progressive mindset, uh, the illiberal progressive mindset is a, is a soup to nuts, philosophical point of view, cultural point of view. And at its center is this notion that they have a will to power, that the state should be used to impose our will. And you can convince lots of progressives that markets are good and markets are fine and all this kind of stuff. You cannot convince them that government per se should be laissez-faire in other realms of life. And I think that's why um, libertarians and progressives of the type you're talking about really can't get along. Sure, they'll agree on gay marriage, they'll agree on 
on all sorts of things, maybe not everyone on abortion, but on, you know, some of the other stuff. Um, but progressives cannot let go of the idea that technocratic experts with the right values running the government should have the final say on what the government should do for the greater good. And that's why I call what the right-wingers are doing that you're complaining about right-wing progressives, because they share that view of the state. They just have a different agenda of what they want to do with it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's fair. And that's why we can't have nice things. So um, <laughs> anyway, all right. Um, there's a certain subset of a fusionist nerd out there who's very excited about this podcast. Um, I think there are literally dozens of them. And uh, they are they are in many ways the core of the remnant that this podcast is named after, um, and uh, and you were a fan favorite. We're going to get you to gold jacket status soon enough. Um, but uh, Stephanie, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Okay, so uh, Stephanie Slade has, has left the conversation. I am still. I have not left Austin. I may never leave Austin. Um, there's apparently another snowstorm coming. I uh, have a daughter who's running out of everything from saline solution to, to well, we've already also all run out of socks. Um, and uh, restaurants aren't open. Grocery stores aren't open. Um, and uh, I have rage issues, the likes of which, um, like there's something very primal that comes out in you when you try to feed your progeny and can't. Um, because of people's inability to live up to their obligations. Um, so I have not gone on a three-state killing spree, but that is almost entirely because it would take too long to get out of Texas to go on one, and because the roads are impassable. So I may have to just go on a three-square block killing spree um, and, and like put a pin in my ambitions for a three-state killing spree to, to later. Um, what this has to do with fusionism and libertarianism, I couldn't possibly tell you, nor do I give a rat's ass for my true and abiding passion is simply to snake Pliskin style, get the hell out of Dodge by which I mean Austin, Texas. And I don't care who I have to go through. I don't care what I have to do. I don't care how much damage to civil society or human life is caused by it. I just want to get my daughter out of here so she can go to her last week of basketball as a senior in high school and stop being ripped off by this pandemic. I've had all the queso I need. I just want to go home. But that may not happen because there's another storm coming because I did not sacrifice enough oxen to ball. And the really weird thing is I should have saved some of the ox to eat because there's no food. Um, so there is allegedly a dispatch live tomorrow night. Um, seems like my Wi-Fi is working felt well enough for me to participate. Um, but given the unbelievable complexities and technological problems that we've encountered today, because the gods of podcasting hate me, um, uh, I make no promises that I will be there. And if I'm not there, we'll get the, the, the great Chris Darwalt to sub for me, or maybe we'll just put a, some sort of unshaven misanthropic sock puppet and put a little thing underneath this Jonah Goldberg and he'll just sit there, um, instead and 
Caleb, our producer, can just sort of make it shout obscenities. Um, but uh, anyway, um, thanks for listening. Sorry if this seems a little off, but um, um, that's the mental state that I am in right now. I'll have more stories about being trapped in Austin later. Um, but as it is right now, I have to um, turn down the flame on the shoe I am cooking uh, for our dinner tonight. So uh, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs> <laughs>